Ladies and gentlemen, on your behalf, I am pleased to introduce today's topic and the speaker who will address it. The statistics are staggering. 173,600 women were victims of violent crime in Canada, according to police-reported data from 2011. Added to this is the mental and emotional burden, the impact of which is far-reaching for all those connected to the victim, families, friends, employers. And let's not forget the healthcare and judicial system. Recent studies have estimated the economic impacts of violence against women in the billions of dollars. The Family Violence Initiative has been developed to help put a stop to this. Fifteen federal government departments, agencies, and crown corporations are collaborating. Included is Citizenship and Immigration Canada, which is promoting awareness of family violence in its policies and programs. Violence prevention activities are targeted at new immigrants. Immigrant and refugee women are particularly vulnerable, as we will hear shortly. The minister in charge of immigrant, refugee, and newcomer issues is the Honourable Chris Alexander, Minister of Citizenship and Immigration. On the eve of International Women's Day, Minister Alexander will outline his government's attempts to address violence against women and the support that is available. The Minister has a rich blend of international experience, having worked in the Canadian Foreign Services for 18 years. Russia and Afghanistan were his main ports of call. He returned home in 2009 and became the Member of Parliament for Ajax Pickering two years later. He served as Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Defence before becoming the Minister of Citizenship and Immigration eight months ago. Minister Alexander is also a newly published author of A Long Way Back, Afghanistan's Quest for Peace. Before I relinquish the podium, I want to let our live audience know that the Minister has graciously agreed to take questions from you at the end of his speech. And you can also join the conversation via Twitter, where you can follow us at CDNCLUBTO or by using that hashtag. And now, Minister Alexander, the Canadian Club of Toronto's podium, Canada's podium of record, is yours. Thank you so much for that introduction. Uh, merci pour cette présentation très généreuse. Bonjour tout le monde. Good afternoon, everyone. Wonderful to be with you uh, in this, on this special ground, right in downtown Toronto, uh, and on this special platform, uh, because the Canadian Club really is one of those venues that we need to prize above almost all others. Uh, I don't know how many of you know, have reviewed the history of the Canadian Club recently, but we would literally not have Canadian citizenship, the pride that we take in our country, uh, the rights and responsibilities that we have as Canadians, unique in the world, uh, were it not for the commitment to public debate of organizations like this. Uh, started, I believe, formally in Hamilton, but then growing very strongly here in Toronto. We have to speak for the whole country as federal ministers. Um, and, and, uh, and, and, and living those values of commitment to country and all that it represents uh, more strongly than any other organization. So please join me in thanking the Canadian Club for the opportunity to have this discussion with you today. I'm also 
really delighted to be here with some of our key partners. All of you here in one way or another are our partners uh, as the Department of Citizenship and Immigration because what we do touches so many aspects of Canadian life and involves so many Canadians. Almost everyone in this country uh, is involved in one way or another in promoting our citizenship uh, and making our immigration programs the tremendous success that they are. Uh, and that certainly goes for Maitri. Thank you, Radna, for being here. Uh, it certainly goes for our universities and employers who are strongly represented here today, uh, the sectors that make the Toronto economy tick, the Canadian economy tick, the financial sector, the mining sector, so many other uh, service sectors that are renowned around the world. But the Institute of Canadian Citizenship has a particular place in our hearts. We are proud to be your supporters, Gillian, but also very um, excited by the input you are able to give us, research insight into what citizenship means to newcomers and to Canadians of all backgrounds, uh, and also uh, your work to enhance the value of Canadian citizenship that we believe in so much, to open the door to this country in uh, terms of the imagination of newcomers by giving this cultural access pass uh, that lets newcomers sometimes learn more about our museums and cultural treasures than many Canadians born here know. Uh, but we want that to be the case. Uh, and we're passionate about what you are doing to take... Uh, the value of Canadian citizenship to new heights. So thank you for that partnership and thank you for your support today. Um, I'm particularly uh, honored to be able to come before you and talk about women in immigration policy uh, because it is an issue uh, that I think reflects our preoccupation as a country uh, with violence against women uh, our commitment to doing much better than we have done, to trying to lead the world in our responses to this terrible uh, phenomenon, which is far more present in our communities and our families than most of us are able to admit or know, uh, and certainly than we've been able to measure for a wide variety of reasons. Uh, I'm proud to be part of a team in Ottawa that includes all parties. Uh, but under the leadership in our government of the Minister for the Status of Women, the Honorable Kelly Leach, that is taking very strong action to make sure that these issues are not simply at the margins of our discussions, uh, that they are at the center of our discussion. And that's why I'm coming before you today for the first time as Minister uh, with a lunchtime audience uh, and a substantive subject with women and the immigration system, and particularly concern about violence against women at the center of this discussion. And I do look forward to your questions. Um, it's great to be in Toronto. This is my hometown. This is where I grew up. Uh, and I'm delighted to be joined not only by my wife, Hedvig, and daughter, Selma, but by my mother, Andrea. and uh, my cousin Martha, courtesy of whom my mother is here. And of course, I've always loved this town uh, and our country, but I have to say that coming back here 
in 2009, older and a little bit wiser, after spending many years abroad as a diplomat, it was with a new and much greater appreciation for this city and its place in our country. Indeed, Toronto is a prime example of why Canada is such an incomparably successful country today. And I'm proud to be on this stage one day after our 180th birthday as a city. Toronto in 1834. Does anyone remember what the boundaries were? Queen Street was the northern boundary. So uh, Bathurst was the western boundary, and Parliament on the east with the lakefront, of course, to the south, different from today's lakefront, much closer to where we are today. So we're in the city of Toronto, uh, but it was a small place, 9,000, 9,500 people, roughly, uh, but already putting forward its best foot uh, and celebrating its diversity. And remember that those first five wards to which, into which the city of Toronto was divided were St. David, George, Patrick, and St. Lawrence, one of the patron saints of Canada. Uh, and it was, you know, all saints celebrated in the British Isles, peoples who came from the British Isles, but harder to get them together in those days than it may seem to us today. And, and Toronto knew from the beginning that diversity had to be its way forward. There were First Nations, there were Aboriginal peoples, there were French Canadians here from the beginning. There was a strong black community in 1834. Uh, some freed slaves who'd started to come up on the Underground Railway, some loyalists who'd come earlier, mostly through Nova Scotia, uh, and they were the ones who went on to make great careers here, like those of Albert Jackson, the first uh, black man to join the Toronto Postal Service, whom Sir John A. Macdonald helped out in 1882. They went on to become the Wilton Peyton Hubbards later in the 19th century, uh, the first alderman, the first council in any city in Canada, and one of the very first in North America of black heritage who rose to be the deputy mayor of this city in the early 20th century. That is our Toronto. And it has been with us for 180 years. But look at what it has become today, ladies and gentlemen. From 9,500 people to 2.6 in the city of Toronto now, 6 plus in the greater Toronto area, which I am proud to call home as a representative of Ajax Pickering, the diversity of our population has been an extraordinary source of strength for Toronto's social, cultural, and economic well-being from the beginning. And it is not just a source of strength today. It is a unique asset in the world today because there is no other city in the world today on this scale that has this level of diversity, that has grown so rapidly on the strength of this scale of immigration than Toronto and the greater Toronto area. So in this respect, we are a happy exception to the international norm, and unfortunately it is the norm in too many parts of the world that I witnessed during my career as a diplomat. Most of the places, other places around the world haven't had the success we've had in Toronto building a peaceful, pluralistic community within a larger nation in which everyone has a place 
whatever their background, country of birth, or heritage. And this is not to take away from the Dubais and the Singapores, Miami, extraordinarily diversity, many American cities. No one is denying uh, how much vibrancy is there and how much progress uh, in terms of standards of living there has been, particularly in the past 10 years in emerging economies. Uh, but let's not be afraid to say that our model is special, the scale of our success is unusual, and the livability of this city. Uh, and I feel it as your Minister of Citizenship and Immigration, the popularity, the drive of people to want to come to this city is certainly unsurpassed uh, in our history. Notre ville et notre pays sont des modèles mondiaux de collaboration entre différents groupes sur le plan de la vie, du travail et de la création. And of course, the contrast couldn't be starker on a day like today when so many of us are thinking about Ukraine uh, and about the fact that a European state, a permanent member of the Security Council, has had the temerity and has been misguided enough to send its troops across with its president denying that, sometimes denying that they're actually Russian troops and sometimes acknowledging it, to occupy an autonomous republic, a part of a neighboring sovereign state. We haven't seen that at least since 1968 in Europe. And if this is an annexation that is being attempted, if the referendum that uh, whose results we are going to reject and most of the world is going to reject, uh, but which may still be held in 12 days, is an attempt to uh, cause the secession of Crimea from Ukraine and join it to another country, that will be the first military-backed annexation of a part of Europe since the 1930s and 40s, ladies and gentlemen. And so the parallels here are truly chilling. The violation of international law is clear for all to see. Uh, and the importance of countries like ours that have enjoyed peace within our borders for 200 years, no mean achievement, no uh, not replicated in many parts of the world. The importance of our standing on principle and telling this story as it is and ensuring that there are consequences uh, moral, political, economic, and otherwise, uh, for those that break the rules on the international stage has never been greater. And so, in living this great experiment of Toronto, of Canada, with the vibrancy of immigration that backs it, we have real responsibilities. And we were reminded of some of those responsibilities last week by His Highness the Aga Khan, at an event in Massey Hall. It was a great opportunity for our whole community to honor one of the great humanitarians and champions of pluralism in the world today, not to mention one of only six people in history ever named an honorary Canadian citizen. How many people were there for the Aga Khan or saw it on TV? Good number of you. When the Aga Khan was looking for a country for the headquarters of his Global Center for Pluralism, he realized quite quickly that Canada was the best fit, thanks to our great successes as an inclusive nation. Uh, and he has paid us many compliments over the years. One of them is 
the acknowledgement, which I think we all sense as Canadians, that to be a successful democracy, you need much more than democracy. Not just votes and representative bodies and elected representatives and politicians. You need all of these supporting components, all of these uh, tiny platoons of mobilized citizens who are working for the good of the broader society. He talked about three critical underpinnings to a successful civic society in really paying tribute to Canada as one of the most successful civic societies in the world today. Commitment to pluralism, to meritocracy, to literally rewarding the best, excellence, talent in all fields, and to a cosmopolitan ethic. And how proud should we be to be living our commitment to those values so uh, fully in this city of Toronto. L'un des éléments clés de la réussite, de la prospérité et de l'harmonie sociale de notre pays réside dans le fait que nous sommes des citoyens canadiens unis, non pas nécessairement par nos origines communes, mais plutôt par une promesse de responsabilité mutuelle et un engagement partagé à l'égard de nos valeurs et de nos traditions enracinées dans notre histoire. This idea of mutual responsibility animates so much of what we do, and certainly my work as Canada's citizenship and immigration minister, particularly when one is focused on the citizenship part. It guides us in working to transform Canada's immigration system so our policies and programs are best aligned with current economic, social, and labor market needs. But it also is our touchstone and inspiration as we bring forward new legislation. The Strengthening Canadian Citizenship Act, tabled in Parliament by our government a few weeks ago, this represents the first comprehensive reforms to the Citizenship Act in over a generation, since 1977. It will improve the process by which newcomers become Canadian citizens and ensure that pro that process reflects the great importance Canadians place in their citizenship today. We all have this sense that being Canadian means something, that it has a higher value than ever before, but we need to protect the value of that citizenship. Uh, that is what newcomers especially want us to do, those who have worked so hard and sacrificed so much to come halfway around the world, to start new lives, uh, to adapt to the winter and everything else this country throws at them. The bill outlines important changes that will strengthen the value of citizenship, increase integrity across the board, and honor those who serve. These changes will ensure new Canadians embrace our values, traditions, and way of life, things we're very proud of as Canadians. It will do something as simple as changing the residency requirement from three out of four years to four out of six years, a flexible number, but one that will be combined with a commitment from every new citizen to be physically present in the country. We did have a certain number of people who sought to be citizens, who became citizens, but who were told by consultants in various parts of the world they didn't actually have to live here to become citizens. And we're still investigating thousands of cases on that front, but we all understand that in getting to know Canada, there is no substitute for actually being physically present here. We used to have a requirement of five years. Then it went down to three. 
Then there was some abuse where some people received citizenship with literally zero years in the country. That's not acceptable to any of us. That's not protecting the value of Canadian citizenship. The new rules combined with the integrity measures we will have will make sure that that connection, that sense of belonging, that link is real. And our belief in the great strength of Canadian pluralism also guides us as we ensure that everyone who interacts with our immigration system is treated fairly. We're doing everything we can to help them successfully integrate as citizens of our country. We have tripled support for settlement organizations since 2006, above all here in Toronto and the greater Toronto area, but also in parts of the country that are receiving far larger numbers of immigrants than they ever have, uh, in some cases in 150 years. And we will do this, provide the support regardless of country of origin, ethnic background, economic circumstance, or most pertinent to what I would like to discuss in the time remaining, their gender. Now tomorrow, of course, is International Women's Day. So we are at a wonderful moment between the birthday of Toronto, International Women's Day tomorrow. I'm very conscious of the fact that the first talk of International Women's Day was in Copenhagen. Hedvig, my wife, is a proud Dane. And uh, I always have to remind her, it was the second international of the Communist Party, Hedvig, where this was discussed. But it, it has taken off since then and become a... Uh, a day that is celebrated under UN auspices everywhere in the world. And it's a great opportunity to talk about what immigrant and newcomer women have brought to Canada. Women in Canada have been making our country a better place, have been leading our way forward as a country from the beginning. Why so many historical references in my speech? Well, in part because Nellie McClung, that great firebrand of the women's movement in the first half of the 20th century said in Canada, quote, people must know the past to understand the present and face the future. Canadian history is full of stories of strong, outstanding immigrant women who were part of the foundation of our success story. And we need to do more to remind ourselves of their perseverance, their sacrifice, their role in shaping the institutions that we take for granted today. Take Mary Ann Shad Carey. Born in the United States, immigrated to Windsor, Ontario in 1851, she opened a school for black children and was the first black woman in North America to found a weekly newspaper. When she later returned to the United States, she not only graduated as one of the two black female lawyers in the USA, but was the first black woman ever to cast a vote in a US federal election. Given the right start and a wonderful opportunity to succeed in Canada, she overcame all obstacles and became one of the most accomplished individuals in our country's history and a major figure in the history of our neighbor. We can also look to the outstanding female immigrant, Irene Parlby, one of the members of the famous five. She came to Canada from the UK, held the seat of Lacombe in Alberta for 14 years, starting in 1921, and sub subsequently became the first female cabinet minister in Alberta. She went on to fight for the full political rights of women in Canada uh, and was one of the driving forces behind the person's case. As we all know, she ultimately succeeded. Her hard and constant battle awarded all women a huge victory for freedom and opportunity through political engagement. And think of how not very far back in time that is, the 1920s, uh, and how 
fragile and recent some of our greatest accomplishments in our political life, in our democratic institutions are. For examples of great immigrant, Canadian immigrant women today, you need only look around you, in this room and not far behind. Each person in this room knows of an immigrant or newcomer woman who's changed the lives of those in her community, her nation, maybe even contributed to something that has had an impact worldwide. I think of the many Afghan-Canadian women that Hedvig and I have held on to as almost canes to steady our way as we've come back from Afghanistan and craved those links back to the culture of Afghanistan and and the language of Afghanistan that we miss so much. They are truly breaking new ground. Canada is well known as a land of opportunity for both immigrants and women, and that's why the theme, our theme for International Women's Day is strong women, strong Canada, and I would add to that, strong immigration uh, has been a key to both. It resonates for me as Minister of Citizenship and Immigration. I've been able to see firsthand that immigrant and newcomer women overcome any and all barriers that stand in their way of achieving goals and aspirations. Let's not forget that our two previous governors general, obviously one of whom is the founder of our sponsoring organization today, both women, came to Canada as refugees, not just as immigrants, as refugees. Adrian Clarkson's family fled the Japanese invasion of the territory of Hong Kong in 1942, and Mikael Jean's family fled from her native Haiti, from the regime of François Papadoc Duvalier, whose Legacy still casts a shadow over that country. These two women overcame harsh realities, embarked on dangerous journeys to settle in Canada, and eventually went on to hold the highest office in the land. Yes, friends, and to be the successors of Samuel de Champlain. Yes, friends, anything is possible for newcomer and immigrant women. We're committed to breaking down barriers and providing the support they need. But unfortunately, sometimes immigrant and newcomer women find themselves having to deal with issues that include isolation and violence. That's why we want to strengthen protection for vulnerable women in Canada's immigration system, support the rights of immigrants and newcomer women in the strongest possible way. We will continue to speak out and stand against violence against women and girls that continues to affect tens of thousands of Canadians each year, including what we consider barbaric cultural practices, polygamy, which remains a crime in Canada, forced marriage, which my colleague, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, has taken strong action against at the United Nations and in the UN Council on Human Rights, and female genital mutilation still exist as a reality for too many Canadian women. The effects on victims are devastating, far-reaching. They impact our children, homes, and communities. In fact, The House of Commons Standing Committee on Citizenship and Immigration is in the midst of an in-depth study on just this topic of protection of women in our immigration system. Witnesses from across the country are coming out to recount what is occurring in Canada on this front and how we can continue to improve our immigration system to stop violence and other abuses from happening in homes and in communities across the country. And you are all welcome, if you're interested, to appear before that committee uh, if, uh, if you're prepared to make the trip to Ottawa or to join them by, uh, by Skype or video link. Leading up to this committee study, 
I spent a considerable amount of time meeting with representatives of organizations that provide services to immigrant women, victims of abuse, and roundtable discussions across the country. All the voices at these tables talked about domestic violence, its prevalence, the fact that it doesn't go recorded, forced marriage, and the toll it can take on extended families, uh, the abuses that continue to plague some parts of our immigration process, and the difficulty of integration of women into their communities, difficulties that are often caused by men. They revealed many ways in which our government can continue to support the success of immigrant and newcomer women, strategies I'm excited to ensure we put into action in the near future. Canada is a landscape where anything is possible, where immigrant women have taken that opportunity and achieved great things. And as much as we can speak of these achievements and victories of immigrant and newcomer women, there are nevertheless tragedies as well. You don't have to be an expert in the field to be aware of the seriousness and pervasiveness of these problems. You just have to follow the news. Take last summer, in my own riding of Ajax Pickering, in the town of Ajax, not too far from where we're meeting today, 50 kilometers to the east, a woman named Nasira Fazli was viciously stabbed to death by her husband. She had been sponsored to come to Canada. He had been sponsored to come to Canada by her earlier the same year. He had come from Kandahar, not much experience of the outside world, certainly an inability to adapt to Canada, to a wife that was earning an income that was independent, that was traveling on her own around the city, around the country, and here we face a murder. Her husband was charged with second-degree murder. She left behind a 17-month-old son. Nazira was a Canadian citizen of Afghani origin, her husband an Afghani national. We assume their marriage was an arranged union in Afghanistan. She had sponsored him, as I say again, a week or two before the attack. She had taken all of the knives in the house and put them into the trunk of her car, knowing what might be about to befall her, and to add additional poignancy to this tragedy. She lived two blocks away from the uh, center Horizon House in Ajax that looks after victims of domestic violence, many of whom are newcomer women. Nazira's sister told a reporter that, that her, there had been warning signs, but Nazira didn't go to the authorities because she didn't want to put in jeopardy her husband's chances of becoming a permanent resident. Tragically, there have been other examples of similar situations across Canada. For all of us, these cases hit hard. They bring home our responsibility to ensure we uphold and strengthen the protections for vulnerable immigrant women, to make sure that we convey to all of those coming to this country what expectations we have under the law for the treatment of women and what recourse and support either in situations of urgency or in more routine situations, there are available in this city and in this country. In order to do so, we've taken a number, to start down this path, we've taken a number of recent actions to address family violence. Through our regulations, we've made it harder for people convicted of crimes that result in bodily harm against members of their family to sponsor any family class member to come to Canada. La violence familiale n'est pas tolérée au Canada. 
et les personnes qui ne, ne respectent pas la loi canadienne et commettent une, un grave crime, un crime grave indépendamment de qui était la victime, ne devraient pas bénéficier du privilège de parrainage. In 2008, the federal court pointed out a gap in our regulations. A man convicted of killing his brother's wife was allowed to sponsor his own wife because his sister-in-law did not meet the definition of relative or family member in the regulations. The regulatory changes now in force fix the gap highlighted in the federal court decision and insist, assist in the protection of sponsored individuals from family violence. We've also brought in new measures in recent years to deter foreign nationals from entering into marriages of convenience to gain permanent resident status in Canada. This includes two-year conditional permanent resident status for certain sponsored spouses. And of course, this builds on all the work we're doing in Canada, in our immigration programs, and around the world to ensure that forced marriage is less and less a phenomenon, certainly not a phenomenon in Canada if we can reach that point, and less and less of a concern around the world. We're very aware of concerns that conditional status could increase the vulnerability of sponsored spouses who are in abusive relationships. They may be reluctant to seek help out of fear that it will negatively affect their status in Canada. Because of this, we put an exemption to this measure in instances where there's evidence of abuse of a physical, sexual, psychological, or financial nature. And the exemption also applies in situations where there's evidence of neglect, such as a failure to provide the necessities of what life. In this way, we're protecting Canadians from falling into marriages of con convenience while ensuring women are never put in dangerous situations as a result of regulations laid out in the immigration system. We've also put in place better guidelines and training to assist our frontline officers in processing requests for exemptions based on abuse or neglect and in handling sensitive information related to abusive situations. There is no substitute for this kind of training uh, for people in the field, in CBSA, in Canada, who are not experts in domestic violence or in, uh, often in law enforcement and who by asking the wrong questions in the wrong context can only make women more vulnerable. These preventative measures are important, of course. The system is not foolproof. The reality is that some immigrant women can and do face violence or abuse after they arrive, just as native-born Canadian women do. So under our settlement program, we provide funding to a variety of organizations that offer services to immigrant women and their families who may find themselves in vulnerable situations. We want quick immigration, integration, but we want these issues to be addressed, to not be neglected, and to end the silence and isolation that too many immigrant women face. That's why our settlement services are flexible. They're changing, they're measuring their results, and they're adapting to the challenges of the 21st century. While overseas, newcomers can access programs that help them understand their rights and responsibilities in Canada and provide detailed labor market information so that they can make informed decisions upon arrival. Once in Canada, women also have access to a range of employment-related supports to help them build their skills to enter the workforce and advance their careers. And finally, in line with the Canadian Citizenship Study Guide, Discover Canada, the latest version of the Welcome to Canada Settlement Guide informs newcomers of what is not acceptable in Canada. And we're very clear about what is expected in terms of the absolute uh, unacceptability of violence against women in any form. For the first time, Welcome to Canada states that barbaric practices such as female genital mutilation, honor-based crimes, and forced marriages will not be tolerated in this country again, under any circumstance. I remain concerned personally that our spousal program still allows for sponsorship of young women and young men who are 16 to 18. Uh, I'm not sure that that is the way to go in the 21st century when we are faced 
with the kinds of challenges of dependence, isolation, abuse, and yes, violence uh, in, in this program. Uh, and putting a minor in that kind of situation strikes me as less than defensible at this time, and that may be an initiative that we return to in the near future. Now, I realize I've gone into some detail with you today about the ways we are working to protect vulnerable immigrant women. It's a serious issue that warrants the attention they give it. And I'd just like to conclude my remarks by noting that women, like men, come to Canada through many different avenues. We are still bringing 261,000 immigrants to this country every year. About 63% of them economic immigrants, the rest in the family class and humanitarian and compassionate classes. We are still rated by UNHCR the most generous country in the world on a per capita basis. One in 10 resettled refugees comes to Canada. But the good news is that in 2012, more than twice as many women came to Canada as economic immigrants than through our family class stream. That's in stark contrast to the situation a decade or two decades ago. Most of them arrived as spouses and dependents of the principal male applicants, but a notable amount were the principal applicants themselves, including 15,500 skilled workers. And yes, we have more and more spouses coming to Canada. We're both our principal applicants. We're both our economic immigrants. In comparison, just over 23,400 women came to Canada in 2012 as sponsored spouses or par partners. So on the eve of International Women's Day, I think we should celebrate Canada's immigration system as a powerful and positive force for immigrant women. It's a force that empowers them to succeed through access to educational, employment, and economic opportunities, opportunities that are often limited or non-existent in their countries of origin. And of course, it offers the opportunity to become citizens of this wonderful country, to grasp the opportunities that girls and women have in this country. Women have shown that they can dominate any field that they choose, that they can achieve anything they set their minds to. And I predict to all of you that our future will be shaped as much by immigrant women to this country as by any other force. So brace yourselves. That message must continue to resonate in our society, in our classrooms, in our places of worship, and around the dinner table. We cannot take any of these issues for granted, even while we celebrate our successes. We must continue the fight against violence in our society across the board, uh, but especially against viol violence against women. Uh, today, um, we're all thinking about the missing and murdered Aboriginal women uh, that our government continues to take action to, uh, to, to address as a neglected class of cold cases, unsolved murders that had gone on for far too long. Uh, we have brought together parliamentarians. We have brought together policymakers. We've brought together research, marshaled it. We brought together 30 new justice initiatives, all of which have some bearing on this issue. And most recently, in our latest budget, uh, an initiative to connect the DNA of those who haven't been identified with the missing person records that are so important to families uh, and the victims themselves to make sure that this issue, as should be the case with all cases of violence against women, does not no go neglected that it benefits from the full force of the expertise 
the insight and the professionalism that Canada can bring to bear. Let us work towards making the next generation of Canadian girls and women the most fearless, and accomplished generation yet. We can achieve it together when we make these issues a priority within our communities and within every level of government. Most importantly, it starts with each woman and girl believing in herself and in this great country of ours. I wish you a great International Women's Day. Minister, thank you very much um, <clears throat> for that uh, touching uh, speech, and you've obviously moved a lot of people here as well as yourself, and it's a very, very important topic, and thank you for being here. Um, the Minister has graciously agreed to take a few questions. There will be roaming mics in the room, and staff will bring them around if you raise your hand. Um, I think we'll begin right back there. Minister, thank you for your very moving presentation today. I am a member of the Jewish Refugee Action Network and I'm here today with both a question and an appeal. I'm also the son of, a, of an immigrant and a refugee, uh, one of them being a Holocaust survivor, so I know very much of what you speak. Uh, there is a woman and a young girl, six years old, Lulu, the Pasuma family, who are presently in sanctuary here in the city as a result of being scammed by a unscrupulous lawyer uh, we have a situation where they were human rights workers in Hungary, Roma, you know the, you know the case very well. And uh, we're appealing to you today to give consideration to at least reassessing this case. This is a woman, you talk about a vulnerable woman, this was a woman whose family was attacked by neo-Nazis outside of Budapest. Her daughter was only 15 months old at the time. Uh, she was uh, uh, damaged uh, physically, her husband had a broken leg as a result of the, uh, of the beating uh, by these people. If they go back to Hungary, their lives are in danger. And I'm happy to speak to you about this personally, but I'm hoping that you will give serious consideration. We may have differences of opinion, sir, on, on many things, and, and, and I, I think alliances on many others. But on this, given what I heard from you today, I appeal to you from the bottom of my heart to give it serious consideration, and I thank you, sir. Uh, thank you. Uh, we have one more question, so just, just two short notes. If you could please identify yourself as you ask your question, and if Alex Trebek were here today, he would say, please phrase your question in the form of a question. Hello. My name is Aliya Khalilova. I am Canadian citizen. As a member of Crimean Tatar community, sorry for my emotion, I'm I'm very concerned with current military occupation of Crimea. Given the history of mass killing of Crimean Tatars, as well as the current threats, particularly directed to, directed to native people of Crimea, Crimean Tatars, I would like to know your position as an immigrant minister. What are the plans of Canadian government to protect or support Aboriginal people of Crimea? Thank you. Thank you, Aliyah. And first of all, we're very happy that you're here. And I know that we do have a, 
strong, not huge, but significant Crimean Tatar community in Canada, and we too are concerned. Uh, this is why Canada has been at the forefront of efforts even before Russian troops moved into Crimea to speak out in favor of a democratic future for Ukraine, against foreign interference, against artificial attempts to break what everyone understands to be the aspirations of Ukraine and all of its minorities, including Crimean Tatars, which is to integrate with Europe, to be part of this larger European home, to enjoy the economic benefits. That's what precipitated this crisis back in November when that association agreement was taken off the table. And it was done so by a president who's no longer in office in Ukraine, thank God. Uh, but it was done under the impetus of the president of a neighboring country who's now sent his troops in. And our hearts go out to you and all of those who are living through this horror today because this is a man, and I don't want there to be any ambiguity here, I'm talking about Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin, the president of the Russian Federation, who has said that the breakup of the Soviet Union was the greatest catastrophe of the 20th century. Imagine that. You know, imagine saying that to Estonians or to Georgians or to Kazakhs and Uzbeks. And imagine saying it to Crimean Tatars who, when they last tried to live together in Crimea uh, and went through the exigencies and horrors of war in the Great Patriotic War, the Second World War, uh, were expelled after that war by Stalin for alleged collaboration with the occupying forces and went, were sent penniless and without resources to Central Asia where they died in their thousands. Uh, they have come back to Crimea to live, and now someone, having taken power in Moscow again, is saying, is romanticizing that story of famine in Ukraine, of exiling entire peoples, of forced annexation of whole countries. Keep in mind, Stalin, long before he was invaded by, his country was invaded by Nazi forces, signed the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, partitioned Poland in 1939. These are stories that Europe and the whole world do not want to relive, and we in Canada will speak up against those who try to convince us that this is somehow to be taken lightly, that it doesn't matter, that it will be okay, it's not okay to violate the independence and sovereignty of a sovereign state, and it's certainly not okay to violate the rights of minorities in the 21st century in Europe. And as for the Pasuma case, I am well aware of it. It is not my direct responsibility, as you know, uh, but we will continue to look at it, and I'm happy to remain in dialogue with you. We have time for one more question right up here. Thank you, Minister Alexander, for that excellent speech. Uh, my name is Don Johnson, and uh, I also have a question on the Ukraine. Do you think there's any possibility that Crimea is attempting to use Quebec as a role model by having a referendum for to secede from Ukraine? No. <laughs> Thank you for your prompt answer. 
The situations are completely different. Why have we rejected, you know, we had two referenda in Quebec. We hope we don't have another one. But because of our democracy, because it was the will of a democratically elected government, uh, and because it was possible under the laws of this country. And I don't think anyone rejects the legitimacy of those referenda. Um, to hold a referendum in two weeks uh, at the, with guns, at gunpoint, essentially, uh, to hold a referendum dictated by uh, a foreign country through proxies that they've set up uh, because of a military occup occupation violates just about every rule in the book of democracy, of international law, and so forth. And that's why we were among the first to reject the legitimacy of that exercise as soon as it was announced. And we have been joined by all the members of the G7, uh, certainly everyone in the European Union, and all freedom-loving democratic peoples the world over. Hi, my name's uh, Justin. I'm one of the students here from the Monk School of Global Affairs. Uh, my question has a little bit less emotional gravitas. It's on a more technical issue. I hope that's okay. Uh, so since 1993, uh, Canadian citizens living abroad for longer than five years, as I'm sure the minister aware, is aware, uh, have been stripped of their right to vote. Uh, there's presently a private member's bill from NDP MP uh, to, to strike this provision from the Citizenship Act. This, of course, affects many long-term Canadian expats living abroad who in fact, according to one parliamentary commission report, do contribute billions of dollars in taxes, who return frequently to Canada to visit loved ones and friends, and who are still subject at the end of the day to federal government laws. Um, to reify this a bit, since I know it sounds a bit abstract and maybe niche, uh, we can think of celebrated Canadian Mark Carney, who by the end of his term as the governor of the Bank of England will have been stripped of the right to vote in federal elections. Um, as a longtime diplomat uh, yourself, I'm sure you can speak to this notion of uh, losing, losing a connection to Canada through long-term residence abroad. Um, so in, in sum, my question is basically, will you support this private member's bill to restore Canadians living abroad's ability to participate in the democratic process? If so, why? If not, why? Sure. No, thank you for the question. Um, and I think it's one we would all be passionate about. Um, uh, First of all, Canadians do have the right to vote from abroad if they get sufficiently organized to be on the voters list, to show that they have uh, a connection to their home riding, uh, and to mail it in. You will not have um, a polling place. We can't have 308, soon to be 338 in every location around the world. It has to be mailed in. Uh, but I've done that many times myself, though it takes organization that takes some preparation. Uh, I think that's probably the best that we can do. Uh, you know, private members' bills and other suggestions are, are welcome. But most countries, especially those with um, first-past-the-post representative uh, 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 single-member constituencies, uh, do not choose to hold a full-scale election abroad because there's not one ballot that you can give to everyone abroad. You have to get 
one of 308 ballots or one of 338, uh, and that just can't be done in every country around. The, the logistics of it are very challenging, and I would invite you to talk to anyone who's come out of Elections Canada uh, or international, the organization of international elections. If it's a, a different system with a single presidential ballot, then it becomes easier, right? Because you can send the whole ballot around the world and get your nationals to vote in embassies or other polling places. Um, so I think that's the justification. Our system works because the logistics of it are re relatively simple and robust, and the oversight is robust. Uh, you can have the parties uh, as scrutineers in all polling places. Can you have that abroad? Are we going to ask our political parties to organize around the world, to keep tabs on each other as people go into polling places around the world? Again, these are the logistical questions that get asked, and I think that's the reason why we don't have it at the moment. Uh, once again, though, it doesn't exclude any of you if you're living abroad from voting. The right is there, but it has to be an advanced ballot. It has to be mailed in, and you have to prove that you are resident or connected with your riding to a sufficient degree. Uh, yes, Canadians abroad pay a lot of taxes, but a lot of them are non-residents. And under the double taxation agreements we have, many pay significantly less to Canada. Doesn't make them second-class citizens, absolutely not. They still have the right to vote. Uh, but let's be clear on you know, what the role of a citizen living abroad is compared to the citizen living at home. We want to have both. But obviously, we want a critical mass of those living at home, uh, fulfilling the full responsibilities of citizenship here, uh, paying most of the freight, as, you were, uh, as it were, in our democratic system. And whatever you may read in the papers, believe me, our new Fair Elections Act, I invite you all to look at it, is a brilliant piece of legislation which has at its center a simple message, we need to publicize how and when people can vote in elections so that we can empower everyone, Aboriginal Canadians, students, uh, disabled people, to take part in our elections. There is no reason why we need to bob along at 60 61% participation. We should be able to go higher, and that's uh, the commitment I think we all have in the Parliament of Canada and in today's Government of Canada. I'd like to uh, now call upon Gillian Smith, the Director of the Canadian Club, to formally thank the Minister. Minister Alexander, let me take this opportunity on behalf of all the guests here to thank you for your encouraging outline of the initiatives being taken by your government to address an important societal issue. Ending violence against women calls for active, engaged leadership at all levels of government, in our communities, and in our workplaces. We are heartened by your ministry's attempts to make sure that the most vulnerable victims have the support they need to navigate the often very stressful settlement process. <coughs> It's clear that the abuse of girls and women isn't limited to one particular group. It indeed affects all segments of our society. We're hopeful that the innovative collaboration with your federal counterparts will go a long way to reducing and eliminating violence against women. As a director of the Canadian Club, as well as the executive director of the Institute for Canadian Citizenship, I was thrilled by the opportunity for our two organizations to partner to host Minister Alexander today. And I was delighted that we could also welcome young Selma Alexander 
to the to it with us today and thank you Selma for sharing your dad with us and I fully agree that cake should be eaten first <laughs> minister thank you for your role that you're playing in these important discussions and as International Women's Day nears I know you agree with that all of us must join forces now to address violence against women thank you Thank you, Jillian, and, and thank you once again, Minister Alexander. I'd also like to once again express our special thanks today to uh, our event sponsor, Scotiabank. Thank you for joining us and for your support. Uh, before we adjourn for lunch, just uh, three quick reminders. On April 2nd, in partnership with, Psych with the Psychology Foundation of Canada, we're proud to welcome to our podium George Cope, President and CEO of Bell, to speak on mental health and corporate Canada. On April 16th, President and CEO of Canada Post, Deepak Chopra will be at our podium. And on April 24th, we are proud to host Sherry Austin from the RBC Foundation, Andrea Cohen-Barak from Trillium Foundation, and Susan McIsaac from United Way Toronto in a discussion about philanthropy. To order tickets to any or all of these events, please visit our Canadian Club website at canadianclub.org. And don't forget that a video podcast of today's event will be available in a few days on iTunes. Simply visit the event listing on our website. Uh, this concludes our television programming, which will be broadcast on Rogers TV in the days to come. We're grateful to Rogers TV for their continuing promotion of Canadian Club events. Now, before we begin lunch, ladies and gentlemen, please rise as you are able and join me in a toast to Canada. To Canada. Enjoy your lunch. <laughs>